Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Chris Houghton. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Going after extremes. After a long investigation, the RCMP arrests two Ontario men, accusing them of involvement in neo-Nazi groups and of working feverishly to enlist others as well. Every way is harm's way. The Israeli military surrounds the city of Khan Yunus and orders the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians within to evacuate. But our guest says there's nowhere safe to evacuate too. A slippery situation. Nova Scotia Conservative MP Rick Perkins spoke out about the poaching of Elvers, Canada's most valuable fish, and he says he got death threats as a result. Singing his praises at the funeral for Shane McGowan, frontman for the Pogues, musicians wax lyrical about his lyrics and celebrate him with the songs he left behind. Putting the ick in Icarus. A YouTuber's brought decisively down to earth when he's sentenced to six months in prison for staging a dramatic plane crash just to get views. And wide open space bars. An LA man auctions off his collection of typewriters, which includes machines used by Ernest Hemingway and Greta Garbo. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that's ribboned for your pleasure. After an 18-month investigation involving multiple search warrants, the RCMP have arrested two men in Ontario on terror-related charges. They're accused of creating manifestos and recruitment videos in support of a variety of far-right and neo-Nazi groups. In a news release announcing their arrest, police specifically name the Terrorgram Collective, the Active Club Canada, the Hammerskins, and the Atomwaffen Division, which was designated a terrorist entity by Canada back in 2021. Peter Smith is a researcher with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network who has been in undercover meetings with members of some of those groups. We reached him in Toronto. Peter, first of all, uh, what jumps out to you about these arrests today? Um, I think we're seeing a real willingness by police and prosecutors to use terrorism designations against um, explicit Nazi and white nationalist groups. Um, And these charges, along with others, um, are showing just kind of the legal avenues they're using to try to tackle the issue. These uh, men are alleged to have had an affiliation with a group in the United States called Atomwaffen. Can you tell us a little about them? Yeah, the Atomwaffen Division was a um, was a neo-Nazi organization founded um, by a number of individuals. It had cells kind of within the U.S., within Canada, um, Its goal was explicitly accelerationist or militant accelerationist, meaning that it was looking to kind of push the divisions of society so far um, to a point that will result in what they see as an inevitable collapse and then results in in them able to kind of rebuild this perfect white ethno state. 
Um, several members have been charged with uh, murders and assaults, various hate crimes. Um, you know, some still remain in jail this day. And within Canada, we have individuals on a number of cases who are who are waiting to have their day in court. Adam Waffen has been uh, declared a terrorist group in Canada. Uh, what has that meant for the people who who used to belong to them? I, I gather they have moved on to uh, another organization. Well, according to the RCMP, a lot of its former members seem to uh, find themselves into the Active Club, which is a, a similarly decentralized um, but less explicit in its Nazi affiliations. It's a white-only uh, workout club, um, but uses imagery, um, rhetoric um, from neo-Nazism. And in Canada, we have 10 individual chapters at least currently operating, um, with many more around the globe. And you, as I understand it, tried to infiltrate this active club Canada. What happened? Um, yeah, I was, at the time, I was able to to join kind of a number of different white nationalist groups. Um, when the active club started uh, in Ontario, it was becoming kind of a nexus point for a lot of people in different networks that we were following. Um, but one of its key features is that it is an in-person group, not just something that occurs online. Um, so you have to show up and you have to meet them and kind of be vetted. Um, when I, I went to a bar in Oshawa and sat down, uh, the members involved introduced themselves uh, as members of the Vinland Hammerskins, which is another um, kind of global uh, network. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I never made it through the vetting. There was an ID check at the very end where they figured out that the name I'd given them uh, at the start of the meeting was not the name that obviously I was born with. Um, and when the article came out, they were able to kind of figure out that I was the person that they'd met with that day um, and kind of put an end to my ability to meet people in person, unfortunately. So the men uh, charged today are accused of having ties to Active Club Canada. They are also, though, specifically alleged to have disseminated materials over a group of telegram channels uh, called the Terrorgram Collective. Tell us a little bit about that network and how it works. Well, that's really one of the most significant things that we're seeing out of these arrests is the Terragram Collective produces fairly slick, high production value propaganda um, that is not only meant to inspire people to go out and cause violent action, but also can serve more or less as a guide, the types of things to take, the type of places or people to target, um, which is typically kind of the usual like uh, minorities, the LGBTQ community, journalists, um, the government, they are extremely anonymous. They, they, guide, they guard their identities incredibly well. Um, these books that they put out as well, they're not small pamphlets. They're sometimes 100 plus pages um, of images and text. They're all written um, under pseudonyms. Um, and so the revelation that uh, these two individuals, Christopher Nipak and uh, Matthew Althorpe, um, may have been contributing to those those works is is incredible. How significant is it in your mind that they have been charged for offenses having to do with creating and disseminating extremist propaganda as opposed to actually committing acts of terrorism? Um, I do think that there is a real distinction there. Um, but at the same time, we are talking about individuals um, who, if they are guilty of what they've been accused of, or explicitly encouraging others and inciting them to commit violence. Regardless of how people feel about it, 
I think that um, what it is showing us is a willingness by law enforcement, by the government, um, to use the tools that they have available to them to try to slow down and, and stop the, the proliferation of these groups and, and movements. As someone who has spent time close to some of the, the members of these groups as you've tried to infiltrate and expose them, what what has it been like for you to to spend time in a, in a room with these people, and and what have you taken away from it? Um, I always found that aspect of the work very very fascinating. Um, you know, when you engage with somebody as a journalist, asking them for comment, or you're only able to kind of see their their public statements, um, you know, there's obviously a veneer or like a uh, kind of a, a tailoring of of how that is put together. Um, but when you're just sitting across the table um, with a guy you've met a bunch of times having a beer, like you know that conversation is going to be going to be very different, and you can kind of get a better feel of what really brings people into these types of movements, what's keeping them in, um, and then you know ideally, if if they could ever be convinced to get out. All right, Peter, thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peter Smith is a researcher with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network in Toronto. That's where we reached him. A tiny eel harvested from maritime rivers has made it to the corridors of power in Ottawa. Elvers, or baby eels, are Canada's most valuable fish by weight. They're flown to China to be grown for food and can fetch up to $5,000 a kilogram. In the spring, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans shut down the harvest due to poaching and reports of violence and threats. Rick Perkins spoke out about the poaching, and yesterday at a DFO parliamentary committee, the Conservative MP from Nova Scotia described the threats that he, his family, and his community have received. We reached Mr. Perkins in Ottawa earlier today. Rick Perkins, can you tell us about the nature of the kind of threats you've received? Well, those those threats were in the spring when the uh, height of the poaching and the uh, theft of uh, these babies, eels, was happening in large numbers in the thousands of poachers on the rivers. And uh, we had calls at my constituency office in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, with people uh, leaving messages, talking to my staff, threatening me. We had calls uh, calls as well, threatening my wife. They named my wife. People uh, saying, you know, we know where you live and uh, we'll get you for what you're saying. Most of these things were happening. My wife was home alone and uh, the staff were in the office and uh, I wasn't there. Mm. Who do you blame for the threats? I don't blame I don't blame every, anyone other than the fact that ultimately the cause of all of this is the unwillingness of, of the liberals who run the Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, to enforce the law. They said before the season started, they were warned for year after year that poaching was increasing increasing and they were warned before the season started in April and the sad part is that the department went out in public to the media and said that they had all the resources we need and then we had in the first few days of the fishery we had violence we had gunshots we had a person assaulted with a pipe on one river 
uh, the police caught them uh, after the fact. I had constituents phoning every day with people threatening them on their own property, crossing through their property to get to these rivers. When you can sell something for $5,000 a kilogram and you can just dip a net in the water to get it, it has attracted more and more organized crime. There were license plates which we turned over every day to fisheries from the United States, Quebec, all illegally done. The license holders had video of every river every day that was always turned over uh, to the authorities. Well, you let me stop you because you said uh, just to begin with. Uh, that you don't blame anyone, but it sounds like you blame DFO and the RCMP. Do you not also blame the people who are uh, allegedly poaching? Well, I think if you... uh, Our whole society works on the enforcement of the law and the respect for the law. And part of that is that when the law is enforced, that is a deterrent to people breaking the law. I do believe DFO, because they are the responsibility for monitoring our rivers and our oceans, it's their job to bring the RCMP in. They did not do it. All of that violence and tension I called out, which is what resulted in the death threats to my family. But that's okay. My job is to speak for my constituents, not for people who break the law. Now, you say the DFO hasn't done enough. The DFO says that it has shut down the harvest, that it did so in the spring to stop poachers. They say that fisheries officers patrolled the rivers, made numerous arrests, and also seizures worth over a million dollars. Why is that not sufficient? Because that's a small fraction of what was going on. There were thousands of poachers on the rivers. They seized one or two trucks, arrested maybe a dozen people out of the thousand poachers. They stayed off the rivers most of the time. Their licensed elder harvesters have videos on every river 24 hours a day, and they never saw a DFO officer. This is fished at night, not during the day. So when DFO goes by in the day, it is of no use. And so... There was no enforcement, and the result is the violence we've had and the uh, potential destruction of this species by DFO, who is supposed to look after the conservation of all fisheries. They have had no communication with current license holders. The season is only three months away now about what is going to happen in terms of enforcement. And in the meantime, of course, your whole community is dealing with the violence and the threats that you yourself have outlined that you've heard from your staff and your family as well. Um, the, the elvers have great value. What is the solution? Should, should the harvest be shut down altogether? No, because the poaching continues. They didn't stop the poaching. They stopped the legal harvesters when DFO shut it down after 18 days. The illegal poaching continued at its full level for another two to three months. So how do we stop the threats and the violence that your community is seeing? Because that must be very disturbing. You start arresting people the month before the season opens when they start in March. The word will get out and that will reduce the poaching. Now, we've reached you during this marathon vote in the House of Commons by the Conservatives in uh, an attempt to scrap parts of the Liberals' carbon tax. You've been at this since yesterday. How, How is it going? I think I'm the only one on the opposition side that's been here since the voting started 20 hours ago. I haven't left the House of Commons except for this call. Um, So uh, I know that uh, it may seem like arcane and odd things that we're doing having these votes. What we're voting on 
is not the budget, but they, they are the spending for individual government departments on additional spending they want to make that wasn't included in the budget. And the reason we're forcing these votes individually is because the uh, Liberal government, the Trudeau government, used the Senate, uh, the unelected Senate, to block a bill that passed the House of Commons that would remove the carbon tax from farming costs, so for the making of our food. It passed the House of Commons, but the unelected Senate defeated it, or basically gutted it by one vote. And so we said we will make the offer to stop forcing these votes on each individual spending item. And we've, our leader, Pierre Polyev, has stood up on a number of occasions in the last 12 hours and said, we will stop this voting and agree to stop it and pass everything at once if you agree to remove the carbon tax from the people who grow our food, the farmers, and from home heating. The uh, government House leader, Karina Gould, has accused your leader of bullying over all of this. Uh, the House wants to rise for the holidays. What do you say? We think uh, reducing the cost of living for people is more important than the Liberals going on holiday. Uh, if she thinks democracy is bullying, then I guess she's in the wrong business. Rick Perkins, I really appreciate you joining us on what's a very busy day for you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rick Perkins is a Conservative MP from Nova Scotia. We reached him in Ottawa earlier today. I guess I should probably document what's going on. I cut my finger pretty bad, got my elbow. I'm just so happy to be alive. That's a clip from Trevor Jacobs' YouTube video about crashing his airplane, which is entitled, I Crashed My Airplane. You just heard Mr. Jacob on solid ground after abandoning his stalling aircraft mid-flight thousands of meters above Los Padres National Forest in California. Now, just before the YouTuber makes his brave and daring escape, Mr. Jacob makes sure he has everything he needs, like a parachute, of course, and his very essential handheld camera to record himself dramatically falling from the sky. The shocking video was posted online almost two years ago, where it got the attention of a lot of aviation enthusiasts, fellow content creators, and California's U.S. Attorney's Office. This week, Trevor Jacob was sentenced to six months in prison for deliberately crashing his plane for views and then lying about it to federal investigators. Petter Hornfeld is a pilot and YouTuber himself. We reached him in Girona, Spain. Petter, what were you thinking when you first saw the video titled, I Crashed My Airplane? So I was actually notified about this video popping up by a few of my followers who wanted my uh, opinion about it. I hadn't seen it myself, but when everyone asked me to have a look at it and I looked at it, um, I was uh, shocked and amused would probably be the way to <laughs> to describe it. But before I, I get you to um, break down your concerns about this video and, and what didn't look right to you, maybe just tell us what the video would look like to someone casually tuning into it. So this video that, um, that Trevor Jacobs posted um, was him um, explaining that he was going to do a short flight to, um, to scatter the ashes of a friend that had, uh, that had passed away. 
And uh, it, he said, and proceeded to get into the aircraft, show the cameras that he was using, and then he, he took off and he started flying up over over uh, the mountain range there in California. And then at some point, he exits the plane, right? What what happens there? Yeah, so this is where in, where it started getting interesting. So about, I don't know, it's, it's probably about five minutes into the video or so, he uh, he shows that he's, he's having some problems with the aircraft. The engine stops and he starts to, to pump the controls, as we say. He was starting to pull on his uh, control yoke forth and back. And he's sounding very distressed. You, it's cut so that you can see him talking to himself, like, what's going on? I can't believe this is happening, things like that. And, um, and then, yeah, then he basically, he basically jumps out of the aircraft. You broke down all this sequence of event, events, right, on your YouTube channel. Tell me what you noticed immediately. First of all, there are several YouTubers that jumped onto this immediately because there are all kinds of wrong in this video. Um, the most obvious thing is that um, when we teach people to fly general aviation aircraft, PPL, the first thing that you are taught basically is that you have to continue to fly the aircraft no matter what. You are the commander of the aircraft, you are responsible for the aircraft, so you need to take care of that aircraft no matter what happens. And that includes if an engine would fail, because an aircraft doesn't just fall down, it continues to fly and we have multiple ways to either get that aircraft safely down on the ground somewhere on a field or something like that or try to restart the engine to continue to fly so to just jump out of the aircraft at the first sign of any kind of problem would be very very uh, strange. There were a lot of cameras deployed during this whole thing too right we see uh, Mr. Jacob descending with the parachute. And at the same time, we also see the plane crashing. Did the fact that there were so many cameras being used also sort of twig your concern? Not really, because there there are a lot of legitimate channels out there, uh, aviation channels who have, you know, but pilots who have their own aircraft and they rig a lot of GoPro cameras all over their aircraft normally in order to get as many good shots as possible. So the fact that he had a lot of cameras didn't necessarily mean much. But what did obviously stand out was that when he started having these problems with the aircraft, the first thing he did was take up a handheld GoPro camera and start filming himself. And that wouldn't be a normal reaction if you think that your life is in danger. But on top of that, there were so many other things as well. When you, when you have an engine failure, an engine problem, the first thing that you should do is to make sure that the aircraft has the correct speed to get the best possible glide. But he wasn't doing that. He was actually slowing down the aircraft. And the only possible reason for doing that would be to get the propeller to stop, which would look cooler on the video. Trevor Jacob uh, could have been sentenced to as much as 20 years in prison, but he he made a plea agreement uh, earlier this year. And because of that, the judge only sentenced him to six months in prison. What was your reaction when you heard that sentence? I was a little bit surprised because uh, as far as I thought the plea agreement was for a, a minimum of, uh, I think, 18 months. So for him to get six months was more lenient than that. But the most important thing here, I think, was the fact that he actually did get prison for it because it sends very good signals to, to people out there to not do these kind of stunts in the first place. So the fact that he got a prison sentence, I think, was good. Do you think that will succeed in deterring people from trying to create content the way he did that that could pose dangerous to other people? 
I hope so. Um, because what I always say as a content creator myself is that when you create content that reach potentially millions of people with his video actually did you have to make sure that what you create is positive and constructive and teaches people the right thing um what he did was teach the absolute wrong thing and in the worst case scenario someone who's a new pilot who might see that video might think that that's the way to go and bring a parachute themselves and potentially you know jump out of the aircraft at the first sign of any problem that aircraft might continue on to crash into a house or kill someone on the ground and worst case scenario that person might not even be a good parachuter and kill himself in doing so so doing a video like this you have to either make sure that the people understand that what you're doing is a prank or you have to make sure that you're teaching the right thing so hopefully this prison sentence sends the signals out to people that that is the case do not endanger people and property in this way better it's very good to talk with you thanks so much thank you Petter Hornfeld is a pilot and YouTuber. We reached him in Girona, Spain. This morning, the streets of Dublin were lined with thousands of people gathered to bid a final farewell to the late Shane McGowan. The beloved singer-songwriter, best known as the frontman of the Pogues, died last week at the age of 65. The funeral was full of Mr. McGowan's music, including performances by Glenn Hansard and Lisa O'Neill and Nick Cave. Father Pat Gilbert described Mr. McGowan as, quote, our modern-day bard, a poet, lyricist, singer, and trailblazer who reflected life as lived in our time calling out accepted norms that oftentimes appear unacceptable, unquote. Here's how it sounded this morning as some of the mourners broke into song during the procession. It's our sound of the day. Fans of the late Shane McGowan singing the Pogues a pair of brown eyes during the funeral procession for the singer-songwriter this morning. Khan Yunus is the second largest city in Gaza. In normal times, it has a population around the size of London, Ontario. Now that population has swollen by half to an estimated 600,000 as newcomers flee the war to the north. But the fighting they fled is now in the streets of Khan Yunus. Israeli forces say they have the city surrounded and are calling for neighborhoods to evacuate. 
This comes as the World Health Organization warns that conditions in the city are leading to the spread of infectious diseases. We reached freelance journalist Akram Al-Satari in Khan Yunus earlier today. Akram, we are hearing reports of gun battles between the IDF and Hamas fighters in the streets of Khan Yunus. What are you seeing and hearing? Well, as a matter of fact, we have been hearing very fierce fire exchange going on through night and day. For four days now, we have been hearing the explosions coming from all different directions of Khan Yunus city. Some of the people saw some Israeli tanks in areas of uh, northeast Khan Yunus and west-east Khan Yunus. As far as you know, is this happening all through the city then, right in in the center as well as in that area? Yeah, yeah. I'm not far away from there, and I can hear the uh, fire exchange. It is around 1.5 kilometers away from me, which means it would be around 500, 700 meters away from the uh, from the center of Khan Yunus city. So many people have come to Khan Yunus to escape the fighting in the north, and now the IDF is telling people to evacuate Khan Yunus. Uh, are people staying, or are they moving on? Some people are staying. Some are moving on because of the intensity of the bombardment and because of the fact some of them were people who came from Gaza and North Gaza I saw some people who are moving for the fifth time now. You walk down the street, you see thousands of families carrying their blankets, carrying their water alone. They are trying to use anything they can for the sake of fleeing to what they think is safety in the very south of Rafah. When we talk about the IDF saying that people should leave the city, um, how are they communicating that evacuation order? And and just to be clear, is it the entire city they're telling people to leave? They are airdropping uh, leaflets with uh, maps and with directions. Uh, and they are also dropping full maps of whole area uh, with designated blocks for specific areas, uh, assigning them numbers, and then saying this area with number, for instance, my area uh, is assigned the number 36. And they were saying that this area, Hamadi, number 36, should be leaving their places and moving to the very west in Al-Mawasi or moving to the very south. And also they're communicating that through the phone call and telling them you should be moving, you should not stay in your area, this area is going to be a very dangerous till field time soon. Do they give you a timeline for when to get out? No, they did not. No, no, they did not do that. For the people who remain behind in Khan Yunis, what kind of shelter do they have access to at this point? Because you have posted video clips that show things like makeshift tents being constructed along streets. They are using random stuff, including the three branches. Uh, sheets, uh, plastic sheets, nylon, and all of those things. This area is a deserted area, no supplies of any kind, and they needed to do anything they can for the sake of just building a shelter as somewhere that they can sit or relax under this extremely difficult situation. People building uh, makeshift tents out of branches and sheets. What is the temperature like? What is the weather condition like right now? It's already December, and the weather is getting very cold sometimes. And you can imagine, and I don't think you will be able to imagine, even when I was walking there and seeing the people, 
and seeing how they're doing, like constructing the tents, I was like crying from my heart. What about uh, food and, and drinking water? Do people have access to to either of those? No, no. It's now very scarce. Even water for the daily consumption or the hygienic purposes is no longer available. And that leaves people with a serious uh, public health risks. I've seen photographs and, and video of hospitals and medical units uh, appearing to struggle with the number of people that they are dealing with. Uh, the World Health Organization is warning that, that the conditions there may lead to the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, what is the situation when it comes to health care? Is there medical care available? Medical care is not available. Uh, and yes, indeed, there is some very uh, imminent risk of uh, of diseases. Also, there is thousands of people who are still under the rubble of the homes. And the decomposing bodies, and I saw some of the decomposing bodies, they will be transmitting some diseases. So there are some issues that are already affecting the people that are related to the public health and that are observable and recorded as well. You uh, are not just in Khan Yunus uh, as a reporter covering a story. Can you explain to us how you yourself had have ended up there? Well, uh, uh, like any Gazan, I was in my own homes, and then I had to move. So I am now in Khan Yunus refugee camp. The situation for me personally is extremely challenging. I keep watching my children, and I keep worrying about how would they be facing this increasingly tense situation. I worry about them. I worry about their safety. I worry about their future. I worry about the fact that they no longer have a shelter. To us, life became a daily challenge. The routine that we used to enjoy before this whole thing started is no longer there. The whole routine now is a continuous moving from one place to the continuous avoidance of any possible and imminent threat of death and destruction, continuous seeking for the food and for the supplies and for the water. The life has turned upside down in a way that is unconceivable and unacceptable. Can I ask what you say to your children? I tell my children that this time will come to an end, and I hope that this time would come to an end while we're still alive. If we're not still alive, there's nothing that we can do about it. We're watching the news. We're seeing people are dying. We're seeing how whole families are ending up under the rubbish without any guilt, without any engagement in any military action. And we understand that we might be victims. I tell them we're watching the news, but we might become the news in a blink of an eye. So there is nothing that we can do about it. We learn to accept and to cope until something good happens. And if that something did not happen, there is nothing that we can do to change it. Akram, uh, I'm so sorry to hear about the, the difficult situation you, your family, and everyone else is, is in. Thank you very much for telling us about it. You are so very welcome, and thank you also for asking and reporting and following up the whole thing in Gaza. We reached freelance journalist Akram al-Satari in the city of Khan Yunus, Gaza.
Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. When you get deeply into a writer's work, whether it's a Nobel Prize winner or the person who writes the alien firefighter erotica you so enjoy, you imagine their whole writing situation. What do they wear while they're writing? What is their writing space like? Is it spartan or full of stuff? And what do they write on? Well, Steve Soboroff doesn't have to just imagine all those details. He can see at least one of them up close anytime he wants. For decades, Mr. Soboroff has been collecting typewriters, and not just any typewriters. Over the years, his collection has included machines used by Ernest Hemingway, Maya Angelou, and Tennessee Williams, to name a few. But now the Los Angeles entrepreneur has decided it's time to part ways with those pieces of history. 33 of his typewriters are going up for auction in Dallas. We reached Steve Soboroff in Los Angeles, California. Steve, where does your mind go when you are looking at this collection of typewriters and imagining these famous writers sitting at them and working away? I spent 20 years, Helen, doing just that, and it gives me the chills because uh, these typewriters, from what I've learned from some of the people firsthand, um, most of them have passed away, and from their relatives, is that these typewriters are a part of them. Uh, um, they're uh, almost like an appendage. You know, the, these machines are not machines. They're part of the history of the people that owned them. So why get rid of them now? Because a number of museums and exhibits and people want them to be in their exhibits. So I've been shipping them all over. And uh, it takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, I did a great job, frankly, for 20 years in celebrating these typewriters. And I feel now that it's time to let somebody else do that. It's too much work. And I don't know if you've ever been a coin collector, but coin collectors' biggest fear is their grandkid is going to take that 25-cent piece or, and stick it in a parking meter somewhere, you know, <laughs> and that's the end of it. My kids are responsible, but I have a little bit of that fear, too. I, I owe it to these typewriters. But what those typewriters have engraved forever in American literature, playwrights, I hope that they continue to uh, to tell their stories. Can I ask where the, the the nugget of this comes from? Like, where was the first moment that, that you fell in love with typewriters? Do you remember that? What happened was I owned a baseball glove that a very famous pitcher owned. His name is Sandy Koufax. Mm-hmm. And I, um, it was time for me to sell it because I had five kids and they're starting to go to college and everybody was talking about Sandy Koufax. So I put it up at an auction and it went for three times what I expected. And the next item up was a typewriter owned by the most famous sports writer in the world. And it's the least famous of my typewriters now, but um, that got me going because the idea of sitting there and touching that. Can, can I, I ask if... Um, You've had these sitting around, and, you know, obviously they're very valuable. Do you ever let other people touch them or type on them? Yes, I do. When they go to exhibits, I allow 
people to type on them if they make a contribution to a journalism scholarship fund for underserved. Except for one notable exception, I will not allow anyone to type on Ernest Hemingway's typewriter. You know, he had a few typewriters, and they're in museums around the world, but this one isn't. Um, But this was his last typewriter, and some of his last words were typed on that typewriter and some of his work. Is it true that you turned down an offer from Angelina Jolie to buy that typewriter? $250,000 with a deposit paid. Um, And uh, I didn't know it was her, but I found out. But they, they wrote me a check, and I looked up the studio, found out it was her. And then they called me before and said, look, you know, we're going to send over the rest of the money and get the typewriter, but um, tell us where you have it serviced. And I said, what? I don't have that serviced. That one, I don't have serviced. You can't type on that. It's 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 it's, it's history. sacrosanct to you, um, it sounds. I think it is to the world, frankly. Once they go up for auction, you won't be able to control who the buyer or buyers are. Are you confident they'll end up in good hands? Well, you're making me nervous, okay? Um, <laughs> um, so the answer is yes, and but I'm a little bit afraid. Um, I have written a letter to each of the winners saying congratulations. Um, and I said, and my hope is that um, because you're going to get a lot of calls from um, media and from museums and from exhibitors that want that typewriter to come and be uh, shared with the world. And my hope is that you will do that. I know Tom yeah. Hanks is one of the world's, you know, big typewriter collectors, more famous ones anyway. Do you Funny. have yeah. specific potential buyers that you know have their eyes on this collection? Well, uh, no, because they don't tell me. I mean, I have friends that are, you know, bidding, but anyone can bid online. Um, but, I mean, I uh, got a chance to meet Tom Hanks. I knew he was a famous collector of typewriters. And... Um, he types, He collects for the machine. I collect for who wrote on the machine and what they did. So I said to him, I said, hey, we have the same uh, repairman. I said, he goes, oh, that's nice. You know, if, if I ever have any duplicates, maybe you want one. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm only interested if the owner of the typewriter was on the cover of Time magazine. So he stops exactly what he's doing. He gets away from like five people, comes over to me, stands about three inches from my nose, and says, I was on the cover of Time twice. <laughs> he met your the next standard. Day, he sends over his, the next day, he sends over his typewriter in Two Time Magazine. Wow. And a letter. Wow. So now, what are you going to do with the money? Um, I've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to this um, foundation for journalism students. I've given money to this, for these scholarships, and I'm going to give a portion of the money that I get from this um, to the memorial foundation that's going to continue to provide scholarships all over all over america for underserved uh, students to celebrate journalism well i certainly hope that uh, they they rake in enough money to really support that program thank you so much as a as an owner of a not valuable remington ran 1950 letter writer that means a lot to me but nobody else i appreciate your love of typewriters and that's it you know send me the serial number and i will tell you stuff about your own typewriter that you would, would never have found out <laughs> oh that's very cool it's a pleasure to talk with you all the best with the auction thank you all right bye bye Steve Soboroff is a typewriter collector and entrepreneur in Los Angeles. That's where we reached him.
When Louise Edwards walks down the streets of Kamloops, she can hear the whispers. Once in a while, someone will even point. There she is, they'll say, the Christmas lady. Over the decades, Ms. Edwards has become known for the elaborate decorations she puts up for the holidays, and for some people that might create too much pressure. But Louise Edwards eats pressure like shortbread. Recently, the CBC's Doug Herbert dropped by to chat with her. How long have you been doing this? You have to ask me that question. See, I lie about my age, and that's going to be... (laughs) Well, the fire trucks, like for the Christmas parade, uh, 43 years ago, the the, the fire department and my decorations won the award. And I was still doing that then, so... Okay, so we're, we're, you, you've been decorating for some time for now. For some time, <laughs> yeah. clo- closing in on 50 years, would that be a fair yeah, guess? I think you're, yeah. How many uh, lights would you guess do you oh, have? don't even ask. I don't know. I just threw, I mean, what I threw out today is 30 strings. Okay, yeah, so if okay. you're throwing out 30 strings, uh, well, you've got a heck of a lot more up here. Yeah, and that tree over there, that domey one, yeah. that's new lights this year. It's a new, they're new bulbs or a new th- whatever. And I really, and, and they're the kind I can change to white during the, you know, whatever season or the colorful for Christmas or just yellow or whatever. I, I bet you must have uh, been quite happy when they started moving over to LEDs and you didn't oh, yeah. have to change all the bulbs. And... Well, no, it was the cost of the electricity. Oh, yes. You that, probably that, that paid a lot for electricity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 1000 to 1200 easily. I don't know what it'll be this year because hydro rates have gone up again, eh? That's fair. So I'm just a little bit. But it'll be what it's going to be. Because I, I cut out the Halloween because of that. And what do you have under this tree oh, here? Isn't that gorgeous? That's, that's a village I made for the kids of the neighborhood. Oh, Actually, that kid is growing up and married now. <laughs> so no longer a kid. <laughs> they can bring their own kid, maybe. They do bring their own kids now. I guess, yeah, you probably see some generations of families many, come through Many, here. many, That's That's just, yeah, they, they have their rituals to come every Christmas Eve or whatever day they come. And, you know, they know the drill. They know the drill. When do you actually start decorating? It is a year-round project. It's not something you can do in a month. Cleaning the lights. Like after this hiatus, you know, until this year, I had, we took every light off. And they were, they were road dirty. So into the dishwasher they went to clean them all up, eh? Wow. Clean them up, fix them up, do whatever, and then starts the process. Into the dishwasher? I would never yeah. have thought. I mean, I got tired of doing it the old way, and they weren't coming clean. So I, And I've got a big old-fashioned heater, eh, at the back? Yes. So I thought, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? So I put them through the dishwasher, quickly ran over to the heater, which really works good. Everything worked perfect. And they were bright and beautiful. I imagine people must be through here, well... Most every night. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they've already been driving by. And, and yeah. you're not even finished yet. I see a oh. couple ladders out. and okay. <laughs> Yeah. Louise Edwards of Kamloops, B.C., talking to the CBC about her holiday decorations. Public health experts are linking five deaths to cantaloupe. Yesterday, the Public Health Agency of Canada gave an update on the salmonella outbreak that it says is likely linked to two brands of the melon. It also reported that over 120 people have gotten sick in Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia, New Brunswick, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador. 
April Hexamer is the director of the Outbreak Management Division at the Public Health Agency of Canada. We reached her in Guelph, Ontario. April, should our listeners be skipping the cantaloupe when they're out grocery shopping right now? Oh, it's a, a great question. So there, there is an ongoing outbreak of salmonella infections in Canada that has been linked to two brands of cantaloupe. They are Malachita and Rudy brand cantaloupes. These cantaloupes have been recalled from the Canadian marketplace, as well as other products that, that have been made using these cantaloupes, such as fruit trays and uh, other fruits that have been processed alongside these cantaloupe. And when I say that, I mean um, fruits that were cut with the same knife or cut on the same uh, cutting board. So we're advising people in Canada to not eat, use, sell, serve, or distribute the recalled Malachita and Rudy brand cantaloupe, to not consume any products made with those cantaloupe or the other produce that has been recalled as well. We're also asking people to check their homes, their refrigerators, their freezers for any um, cantaloupe that they they may have in in those in their their homes. So any of the recalled cantaloupe, and if if they have a fruit tray or some pre-cut uh, melon, and they aren't sure what the brand is, we are recommending that they throw that fruit out and wash their hands after they've handled it. Yeah, this is the time of year when people are going to a lot of potlucks. They might want to grab one of those fruit trays. Is there any way to ensure that the the fruit that is on those trays is not contaminated? Yeah, so this uh, outbreak investigation has been going on for a couple of weeks now. While we do continue to find some products, at this point, it's the, the number of products identified to be contaminated is slowing down. We're, we're fairly sure that the, the contaminated product is off the market. However, um, people can always ask at the store if the, if the fruit tray was made in store and if they know what, what products were used in the fruit tray or, or they can make other choices if they, they are concerned about it. It isn't really uncommon to hear of foodborne illnesses, and salmonella is one of those. But hearing about five deaths does seem uncommon. Is is that true? Yes, it is true. Um, we are seeing some unusual patterns in this outbreak investigation. Um, the first is that we are seeing a higher than usual number of individuals who became sick who are children that are five years of age and under, as well as adults 65 years of age or older. In fact, 80% of the people who became sick so far in this outbreak have been in those two age categories. Similarly, we are seeing a high level of illness severity. There have so far been 44 individuals who were hospitalized and the five deaths that have been reported. And this is certainly higher than what is typically seen during a salmonella outbreak investigation. And presumably those people under five and over 65 might be seen as potentially more vulnerable? That's right. The The age groups that, those are the age groups who are more vulnerable specifically to severe illness in the salmonella outbreak. Um, the other vulnerable groups are those with underlying medical conditions and pregnant women. You mentioned that most of this fruit has been identified as not in the market. I understand the last of the cantaloupe sold was November 24th, and yet we are seeing the number of people infected has jumped. Why is that? Yes, unfortunately, this is a large outbreak, and there has been a lot of illnesses reported. 
Although measures like the product recalls have been taken to prevent further illness, we do continue to see illnesses reported. This is primarily because it often takes a number of weeks from the time an individual gets sick to when the illness is reported to public health officials. Um, we need some time to test the samples taken from those ill individuals to confirm whether they have a salmonella illness or if it's another bacteria that's caused their illness. And there's also um, a time needed to identify the specific genetic strain of the bacteria that caused their illness. This genetic strain information is used to confirm that ill individuals are um, all related to one another. That is that they've all been exposed or consumed the same contaminated product. Um, and also we use that information to confirm that it was a product that, that caused their illness. And in this case, the, there were cantaloupes that were found to have salmonella in them, and the genetic strain of that salmonella is identical to the genetic strain of salmonella that's in the ill people. All that um, reporting time takes uh, anywhere from two to four weeks. So some of the illnesses that we're seeing now were reported as long as four, or sorry, were people who became sick as long as four weeks ago, maybe as more recent as two weeks ago. So given how long then it takes to identify, is it likely that we may see more illnesses or even deaths registered? That's that's um, quite possible. There are additional salmonella illnesses that are under investigation and more illnesses associated with this outbreak may continue to be confirmed. We, uh, we have also heard that there are deaths and illnesses south of the border. Uh, what kind of coordination goes on between you and your U.S. counterparts in a situation like this? Well, we work very closely with our U.S. counterparts uh, always to detect um, outbreaks of foodborne illness. And when there is one that is um, uh, underway or happening in both Canada and the U.S., uh, we are communicating with those um, those organizations like the, the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., as well as the Food and Drug Administration daily, sometimes multiple times daily. Um, we're exchanging information and we're working together to identify the, the scope, the impact, and, and the cause of, of the uh, outbreak. Thank you very much. Good practical advice, and, and good to hear it from you. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. April Hexamer is the director of the Outbreak Management Division at the Public Health Agency of Canada. She's in Guelph, Ontario. There is a special potato that grows in secret locations across the country. Even if I knew what those locations were, I couldn't tell you. I said I could not tell you. Stop asking me about the special potatoes. I'm sorry. It's just please stop giving me the third degree about the potatoes. I could get in a lot of trouble because they're illegal. Canadians are not allowed to grow the caribou potato for commercial use. But potato enthusiasts say they are special enough to keep alive. Rob Deether grows the outlawed breed of potato at the Horse Lake Community Farm Co-op. Okay, I'll tell you one secret location. We reached him in Horse Lake, B.C. Rob, I understand that caribou potato is pretty distinctive looking. Describe it for us. The caribou potato is a really a very attractive. Um, it has a, a slightly yellowish smooth flesh, and it has 
pink around the eyes. The eyes are very shallow, pretty distinctive, all right. How big are they? Um, well, they can get quite large. I would say most uh, are kind of a, like a medium-sized um, russet potato, the ones that you would you might use for baking. Right. So is this like a russet potato, a, a floury one, or more of a waxy potato? Uh, it's kind of a, a sm- very smooth, uh, creamy flesh. Um, you know, when they're cooked, they are that way, very creamy, and um, they're very delectable. Yeah. What is what is the taste like? Can you compare it to any other potato? Oh, um, well, that's kind of tough in a way, Ellen. Um, yeah, they would be. They they would have a similar taste, I think, to other smooth skin varieties, um, maybe the Yukon Gold, and another potato that we grow uh, called the Siglinda, um, and they're, they're quite similar. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada decertified the caribou potato in 1976. Why isn't the caribou considered suitable for commercial growth? Well, it was a, a very good uh, potato, and it seemed to pass all the tests when Ag Canada had some local folks um, experiment and grow the potatoes out, and they did very well. Um, However, the weak point with a potato, at least for the commercial growers, was the fact that the tubers themselves clung to the vine. So as they went through the harvesting machines, they tended to to get things jammed up, Um, and uh, it it wasn't a, a characteristic that was... Uh, really appreciated by the commercial growers. So, uh, yeah, in 1976, Ag Canada decertified the potato. And by delisting, that means what? I mean, can I grow one in my backyard? Or it's it's a question I can't produce it commercially? Well, uh, it can't be produced commercially, and it can't be produced and and sold as seed. Uh, As far as the backyard gardeners are concerned, well... Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't think Ag Canada has gone after anybody for, for growing it to, in their backyards. Do you but, sell yours? Uh, well, no, we don't. We, we, we actually, we give them away. We, we sell, we, I grow about a half an acre of potatoes on Horse Lake. And uh, we just, we have a, always have two or three rows of the caribou potatoes. And most of them we save for seed that we give out, and then of course we, you know, we need our own seed. And uh, just recently, we've had a flood of emails from across Canada from people um, wishing to try the caribou potato. Now you've been threatened uh, with a ten thousand dollar fine at your co-op for growing these. So why do you keep doing it? Oh well, the threat that was made was uh, years ago when this whole thing first uh, blew up, and that was in 1983-1984, and we had a letter from the Ministry of Agriculture in B.C., and it ended, ended by saying, I suggest that you select and grow varieties that can be legally grown in Canada. Well, that was just enough to set us off, and uh, because, you know, we always believed that the state has no place in the backyard gardens of the nation. So was that what gave you the impetus to to take this on, kind of those fighting words? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, we did a certain amount of, uh, you could say, mud raking in those days. And uh, so this was just the perfect issue to uh, get get going. 
have uh, have they have anybody come after you try to collect this fine? Uh no. No, no, they never they never have. So it's not you don't feel like it's hanging over your head like this you know sort of Damocles kind of thing? Well, and I suppose in a way we would probably um love to have the uh the I guess you might call them the potato police arrive and uh, <laughs> uh it might be a great deal of fun. Um but no that hasn't that hasn't happened and uh, <clears throat> we don't really expect that it will. If I uh, was, you know, wanting to grow caribou potatoes myself in my yard, how would I go about that? Well, you'd have to get your hands on some caribou seed potato and and then yeah, you can just grow them in the in the garden. They do they do very well. And you know, I have grown potatoes and they do taste so earthy and nice when they come fresh out of the ground, too. Yeah, they certainly do. I understand you have another potato that you want to shout out. It's called the likely potato. Why why is that worth our time? Well, yes, the likely potato is a heritage potato. It gets its name from the small caribou community of likely, and it's a kind of a banana-shaped potato. And they apparently came down from from Russia. And also in B.C. we have the Haida potato as well. And that's similar as well, although I understand it actually came up with the Spanish when they arrived in, on the shores of, of British Columbia um, many years ago. Right. Rob, you've got me craving a baked potato really badly right now. <laughs> Well, the caribou is a wonderful baked potato. They they make a great baked potato. They do well as fries, and uh, I love to to parboil in them, saute them in some olive oil with a bit of salt and pepper. They're very yummy. You are great spokesman for the caribou. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for talking with us. All right, Helen. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Rob Dether is a potato specialist at the Horse Lake Community Farm Co-op. been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.